All right, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Big Questions with Big John. I'm your host, Big John, and today, happy to have on a fellow libertarian broadcaster. Everyone, this is Bob Zadek. And let me give you his uh, quick bio here so everyone knows if you're not aware of who he is already. Bob Zadek is the host of the Bob Zadek Show, the longest running libertarian talk show in California which being in California and having a, a libertarian talk show is an achievement in and of itself, let alone one for that long, 14 years, I think. And he's broadcast live on 860 AM KTRB, as well as 1380 AM in Sacramento and 1590 in Seattle. So he's got a little bit of a syndication going there, folks. Uh, and on those stations, every Sunday, 8 AM. Bob also holds a law degree uh, from NYU School of Law, and he's a charter fellow uh, in the American College of Commercial Finance Lawyers, which means he knows a little bit about the cake, folks. Uh, he has released four books of his best interviews from his shows. Uh, they're available for sale on Amazon.com, and the most recent of which is called Essential Liberty, Finding Freedom in a Post-COVID World. I hope I got it all right, Bob. Everyone, Bob Zadek, welcome to the show. Thank you so much. And John, if I may, my live shows are also broadcast the following day in a podcast, The Bob Zadek Show, very catchy name I put together, <laughs> um, and it's available wherever you may find your podcasts. Excellent. Let's keep an eye out for that, The Bob Zadek Show podcast. I'm assuming Apple, Spotify, uh, all the all the major uh, podcasting platforms. That's great for folks to know if they don't live in the areas where those uh, radio stations uh, transmit to. All right, you know, well, what's interesting, let's start off at the beginning. Uh, we were having a little bit of talk before the show, uh, Bob. Turns out, like myself, you're a native New Yorker, right? Uh, so uh, a Queens boy, as I understand, I'm from the Bronx. But uh, interestingly enough, uh, I've always wondered, New York, a bastion of left-wing politics, democratic, it's a democratic machine, the home of Tammany Hall. Uh, how did you wander into libertarianism? How did you come from a background of such a democratic stronghold to, to, to become a libertarian? I thought you'd never ask, John. <laughs> uh, and, and by the way, I am a New Yorker. I'm a New Yorker who, by a weird twist of fate, found myself living in an equally blue state of California, um, another high tax state. But right. to answer your question, your question, I'm now going to get a tad personal, mm. apologies to the audience if they are sensitive, but I was 17 working as a busboy in what was then called the Catskill Mountains, mm. which was the fantasy of every high school kid in New York City right. to get away from home and work as a busboy in the mountains where there were grown up women. Mm. And I was there ridiculously inexperienced about girls. That's what women were before they were women. They were girls. Right. They were girls. And I was remarkably inexperienced. My, the waiter that I worked for whose name was Noel, was my age, but could have been my father. He actually, he knew all about girls. And we were the same age. He took me under his wing. And I was about to go to college. And he said, the way to make it with girls is you have to get them to think that you're deep. Hmm. And he said, 
the way, the shortcut way to appear deep when you're really shallow is there's two books. You have a choice. Read one or the other of these two books. Okay. And you will appear to be deep. The books are the Kama Sutra or the Fountainhead. Okay. And I said, I thanked Noel. And the Kama Sutra was 86 pages. The Fountainhead was 800. <laughs> I opted for the Kama Sutra. Right. I could not begin to accomplish any of the positions in the Kama Sutra. Okay. So I, I figured, okay, I'm going to end up in traction right. if right. I use the Kama Sutra. So I better use the fallback, which is the Fountainhead. I read the Fountainhead and the Fountainhead got into my head mm. and Ayn Rand was planted there and right. sat there dormant for about a third of my life until she awoke in my brain and I found myself, she was talking to me and there I was a libertarian for the rest of my life. So I had to disclose my ugly secrets of my <laughs> childhood, but I answered your question honestly. Yeah, no, and I appreciate that. And like most men uh, of that era and my era, uh, Bob, you did everything for, for women. For, for, I, to be able to get yourself a good woman, right? Um, a lot of men are motivated. You know, there's a theory that everything men do is motivated by the pursuit of women and the acquiring of, of women, uh, acquisition of women, I should say. Uh, but it's interesting. You mentioned the Fountainhead, uh, Ayn Rand. Now, um, what, uh, what about Ayn Rand's uh, writings did you appreciate? Was it the economic views? Was it the individualistic views? Was it the objectivism, which was her philosophy, not to be confused with her economic theories? Uh, or did the whole package just appeal to you? It was, it really was a reaffirmation of something which I thought I knew, but I didn't speak it a lot and thought maybe I was wrong, which was, it was okay to be motivated by what's best for oneself mm. so long as in the course of seeking that you didn't do harm to others but it was okay it was okay to be ambitious it was okay not to want to just give away what you have um, not that you should be self-centered although she would say altruism is a terrible concept right. but it it, in effect, for me, it gave me permission to be the way I would have been without reading her, but I would have suppressed it because it may be I was an outlier. So I found at least one other human being sort of agreed with my worldview, and I felt totally comfortable. Also, it was her embracing a meritocracy. I find myself always driven by meritocracy. I remember even playing in the playing softball or touch football on cement in the schoolyard. Yes. Remember schoolyards? Oh, absolutely. Well, in yeah. the schoolyard. And I remember choosing up sides. And it struck me that the more popular guys were chosen first. Even though they didn't want to win as much as I did, 
They right. weren't trying as hard to win as much as I was. And I felt that on the pure merits, I should have been chosen, but I was a loser. <laughs> so I didn't get chosen. Uh, right. I was a loser in terms of your social, your social circle. Social skill. Thank yeah, yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you for making me uh, <laughs> save myself from being uh, okay. having the wrong impression. So yeah. there it was. Um, she rewarded merit. Mm. And, the, and I would say that drives my life. People well, yeah. get what they deserve and what they have earned. So the whole thing, and once, you, once I say that, it captures everything. Right. And I felt at home. And oh, it just worked for me. No, that's great. I, I love the way you kind of came to that because, you know, one of, that's one of the questions I love asking uh, fellow libertarians. Uh, that and the other big question is, which is, what kind of libertarian are you? Because uh, as we all know, Bob, you get 10 libertarians in a room, you'll have all 10 of them arguing that the other nine are not real libertarians, right? <laughs> like, quote, unquote. Um, but it's fun. I always love asking the question about how you came to embrace libertarianism, simply because I'm fascinated by how people came to it, their personal journey. For example, I grew up, even though I grew up in New York in the Bronx, and I love hearing your stories, by the way, touch football on the cement, probably played stickball in the uh, in the streets, right, Bob, and uh, maybe even scullies. Did you ever play scullies in the street? I didn't. I played stickball and I aspired to hit the ball, the Spalding. Yes. At least two sewers. Two sewers, sewers were a unit of measurement. Yes. They weren't the place where you put dirty water. No. Nope. It was a precise <laughs> unit of measurement. Yes. As sacred as 90 feet is in baseball. You're absolutely right about that. But uh, just to get to my point, like, for example, I came to libertarianism through a detour of of conservatism as a young man. So I'd say through my teen years, I, I would have considered myself a conservative, like a Goldwater type of conservative, which is already sort of on the cusp of becoming a libertarian if you were a Goldwater conservative. And the thing that pushed it over for me was um, the lack of respect conservatives had for free speech back then. I'm talking about the 70s and the 80s, where they want to control things like pornography or foul language in movies or, or silence certain comedians like Richard Pryor or George Carlin. And at the time I said to myself, the liberals can't be the only ones that have this right. You know, there has to be a philosophy that embraces it. And then the more I read Ayn Rand, Milton Friedman, uh, and then eventually regressed to the philosophers, Adam Smith, John Locke, John Stuart Mill. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, really what I'm talking about is I believe in individuals. I don't believe in caste societies. I don't believe in government. I believe in in um, the individual's right, as you said, to seek his, his how to best live his own life, his or her own life, without doing harm to others or preventing them from doing the same, which is the classic NAP, non-aggression policy for libertarians. So am I correct in saying, Bob, that you are basically what used to be known as a classical liberal, that you're a classic libertarian in that sense, as opposed to the various shades that we now see? Classical liberal was, of course, the early way that libertarians yes. self-identified. And liberalism, the word, got co-opted by the left. Yes. And therefore, to just as a, as a confusing label. So libertarians, um, who were then classical liberals, found them they couldn't really help others understand what their belief system was. So 
the word or the label evolved after being co-opted by the left, it, it evolved to libertarianism. Uh, and right. thus we have the Libertarian Party, uh, which is a whole other topic. Uh, and we have you and I being classical liberals. Uh, you and I in talking together, we can say classical liberals and I don't think you must mean you vote for Pelosi. Right. Uh, you can use that word with me. Right. But in other society, people might not know exactly what your belief system was. You're right. And I agree. Labels have to evolve as the times change and as, um, as understandings of those labels change. But for example, uh, when you talk to libertarians, all of a sudden they start uh, carving themselves into subgroups, right? You have the minarchists, you have the uh, agorists. Anarcho-capitalists like Walter uh, Block. Right, anar anarcho-capitalists. Then you have um, just people who prefer volunteerism. They, they have people who prefer capitalism, good old capitalism, but the pure sense of capitalism, not crony capitalism. Uh, and then you have the anarchists who look up their nose on all libertarians, right? Because they're not embracing the full rejection of government. Uh, do you feel any of those labels are helpful? Or do you well, feel... capitalism? Capitalism is an economic system. Right. Capitalism doesn't capture the entire uh, suite of beliefs uh, that a libertarian might have. Right. For example, there are, and certainly you mentioned that libertarians could disagree in a room. That's partly because certain areas, and I can identify two by way of example, there are certain very important topics where libertarianism itself does not attempt to supply the, if you will, right answer. The two that are wonderful examples are abortion and the death penalty. Mm. Now, libertarians could disagree on the death penalty. Do no harm to others. No one has any right to deprive somebody else of their life, even if they committed a crime. There's That's either libertarian or not libertarian. And the same with uh, state's duty is to protect person and property. And if one of those tools is the death penalty to be used appropriately, so they can be disagreement. Right. Similarly, and we've seen it in the post Dobbs decision of, of repealing or reversing, didn't repeal it, it's not a statute, reversing Roe versus Wade, we see that libertarians don't agree. Cato, the Cato Institute, which is maybe the premier, certainly a leading think tank in Washington, right. uh, felt it appropriate to publish Cato's view on abortion only to help libertarians who may have been struggling. Wait a minute, am I not pure in how I feel about abortion? And a wonderful piece was written by, if I recall, Clark Neely and I think Ilya Soman, Ilya Soman I don't recall, Clark Neely and somebody else right. about a libertarian's view of abortion. I mentioned that only to show that yes, of course, libertarians can within the range of libertarianism disagree in the margins but the right. core policy as you said non-aggression and basically uh, i want nothing more or everything i want for myself 
I must be willing to grant to you. Yes. Uh, sort of the golden rule, believe it or not, is core libertarianism. So if I want the right to be used profane, like to use unpleasant language or to publish pornography, well, then I can't, I have to award you the same right to print and publish whatever you want. Correct. And that's always the test. Conservatives, you mentioned conservatives, and you mentioned their animus towards free speech. Conservatives are very happy to ban books and to uh, limit pornography and to regulate what is said. So that is very anti-libertarian. So we have, we have half, we are half conservative and half progressive. Uh, therefore, we can pass freely and unnoticed in both societies, feeling uncomfortable about 50.1% of the time. But it's a, it's a pretty solid belief system if you do so sincerely. Yeah, and to be honest with you, <clears throat> I it's funny you brought up abortion and the death penalty because I knew you were going to mention abortion because I think abortion is the single most contentious issue under any political system, any belief system, quite honestly. I think it's an unsolvable issue. I, I, I put a lot of thought towards it. Um, my personal belief is that I am anti-abortion as a libertarian simply because I don't know the precise point when a fetus becomes an individual. <clears throat> no, Once they become John, an individual, John, right? John, if I may, yeah. nobody use the word no. I do not, you said, I, John, do not know that. Nobody purports to know it. It's not knowable. And Correct. the fact is, it is for, in that very difficult decision, it is for society collectively to decide what their moral stance is and how they feel about abortion and whether they choose to regulate it at all, because no one will ever know. You can't, it's unknowable. And I, therefore, I yeah. you can't agonize over not knowing. All you have to do is say, I sign on to a system of government that allows the will of the people to regulate abortion, but you, I dare say, will have limits. I'm not asking you to discuss on the air unless you choose to, but you can, if you were asked what you think the rules should be, you have an opinion. You would sure. answer that question sure. as to what the rules should be, and you have to be willing to afford others the same decision and to say, I am not going to tear up my passport if I am in a minority, that's well, the deal. And yeah, if you no, want to sign on to that deal, yeah, you got to be happy. Yeah, I, I agree with you to an extent, Bob, in the sense that <clears throat> I do agree with you. It's unknowable. Uh, my personal view, which I think is in line with individualism and with libertarianism, is because I don't know, ethics guides me to say I'll choose the path with the most remedy. Because if in the event that I'm wrong, there's a remedy available or a greater remedy available. That's why I migrated from being um, ambivalent towards the death penalty that you mentioned to being anti-death penalty for that reason. 
because there's greater remedy if the state is wrong uh, about a convicted killer, right? So if they're wrong about someone uh, being a murderer who's got a capital offense, they've killed an innocent man. There's no remedy to that. The opposite case where you, you don't execute a guilty man, well, they're still in prison, right? So the greater remedy in the event that either side is wrong is with not execute. That to me is the, the principle I go by, which one allows me the greater remedy in the event that I'm wrong. Now, having said that, that's my personal philosophy. Uh, but I still worry about how we discuss these things publicly because very simply, people say, well, it's democratic. It's just, I'm not interested in democracy. I've said that more than once. I'm interested in liberty. I'm not interested in democracy. I do acknowledge the need for a government, but democracy is just a, it might be a benign form of tyranny, but it's still tyranny. It's still two wolves and a, and a lamb deciding who to eat for dinner, right? It doesn't make it any better for the lamb. So in my opinion, I think it is important. And while yes, if you're not an anarchist, you will eventually sign on probably to what the government decides, what the will of the people is. But at the end of the day, I think it's, it's critical to have the, uh, not to repeat the word, but critical thinking around the issues. So, you know, the part that I find the most distasteful is that if you're, if you're pro-choice, then you're a murderer. And if you're pro-life, you're a religious zealot who wants to control women. You know, let me speak are, to those your... are unhelpful narratives, in my opinion. Well, let me speak to, um, I share your, your un discomfort with democracy, but I want to speak to your two wolves deciding, having a vote with the lamb. Yeah. And I say some things, one, you must succumb to the, ma the majority or else you have the one with the most weapons. Uh, Second of all, democracy, since I don't detect that you're an anarchist, I'm therefore not. you do understand the essential role of government and our well-being, so long as it's limited, of course. Well, if you have if you're gonna have government and you're gonna then you're probably gonna have elections, and you have to have a rule, and democracy is nothing other than a check on the behavior of government. So it's not that you're empowering 51% to tyrannize the 49, but democracy is the only effective tool on a government that misbehaves. Going back to your two wolves and a lamb, you wouldn't want the two wolves, if you were the lamb, you wouldn't want the two wolves to decide what we have for dinner, what they have for dinner, obviously. How about majority vote about where the three of them go on vacation? That'll work for you, right? You wouldn't see it unjust. So in other words- I would find it what? unjust to be honest with you. Well, so the lamb stays home and watches the kids. <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah, so, yeah. So, so the point is, so long as the majority, there are certain rights the lamb has that even the majority can't take away, Correct. which of course is the concept of natural rights. The sure. rights of, to quote the declaration, 
All men are endowed by their creator with inalienable rights. In other words, as Randy Barnett said, rights came before governments. True. We have rights when we're born and we, the owner of rights, create a government, but we still have the rights. So the lamb has the natural right, the inalienable right not to be eaten. Correct. Now majority rule is less drastic because it, it the lamb says, okay, the wolves, you can pick where we live, but you can't pick what you have for dinner. That's over. <laughs> so, so I can make democracy work. I'm just using your metaphor. Sure. I and, appreciate that. And comparing yeah. it. No, this is a great com conversation because I guess I, I, it's when I have a discussion with you or with a fellow libertarian, we can come to that understanding of democracy as just a, a mechanism for the execution of a government that enforces negative rights only, so to speak. And I hate the term negative rights, but that's how most people describe them. So that's the term I use. Um, and that's why I'm not an anarchist, by the way, <laughs> because I recognize the need for the peaceful resolution of disputes. That's why we need a court system and somebody to manage the court system. Uh, a police force to ensure that I don't bash you over the head with a bat just because I feel like it, um, and to protect us from other societies that don't share our view of individualism. So I understand that we need a government. I just, to your point, maybe that's because I'm a minarchist, if that's the other sort of slice of libertarianism you want to use, a government that only enforces negative rights. So for example, redistribution of wealth, out. Um, conscription, military conscription, out. Uh, taxation, for the most part, out. Um, anything like that, most regulation. And I'm against all that stuff because I think on some level, it, it's an effort to curb your individuality. So I, I agree with you. We all have natural rights way before. Government doesn't give us rights. They, it, it, they should only protect our rights. So in to that extent, uh, I would agree with you that out of all the systems used to implement the government, a republic or a democracy probably is the one that's worked the best thus far. Um, but I take issue with people who think the mechanism is the government itself, meaning that, hey, that 51% gets to decide what we all do. And no, it's not. You know, there's a mechanism to say, okay, we voted in people we feel represent us or don't represent us, but the act of democracy itself is not a foundational form of government or a philosophy for government. You said so. two things that I, I hope you say it every time you're on the air because they're really important. And one of the things you just said is um, you don't want 51% of the people deciding what we can do. That's 100% right. And the concept of democracy and where we absolutely meet is the 51% of the people only gets to decide one thing. They get to decide who protects our rights. Correct. That's all. Right. They get to pick people who get who have their sole job is to protect our rights. The 51% don't get to tell us what to do other than the obvious natural rights as, as uh, Matt Kibbe said in the title of a book describing it, he summarized libertarianism as don't hurt me and don't take my stuff. Yes. Um, and the 51% get to decide who are the people 
who make sure no one hurts us or takes our stuff. Right. And that's the role of democracy. Yeah. And I'm perfectly happy to let your guy win sometimes and my guy win sure. other times. Sure. So long as all they're going to do is protect me. I don't really care <laughs> who protects me as long as I'm right. protected. Right. And I, and I, and I, I can, I can sign on to that. Like when it's phrased like that, absolutely. Um, but I, nothing rankles me more than when I hear either a Republican or a Democrat tell me like, well, you know, vote to matter we voted on this therefore you know you get to have a regulator tell you what you could build in your backyard no sorry that doesn't work i've never signed on to that so uh i'm, I'm glad we could come to that understanding at least and you mentioned also earlier another phrase is that i get the feeling you mentioned it early in many of your shows which is you made passing reference to income redistribution mm -hmm. as high on the list of stuff you have no place for in your system. Um, and of course you're right. And uh, I've heard it summarized. I've never heard it expressed better than uh, those who argue in favor of redistribution. The response is just because somebody wants something doesn't mean they have a right to have it. Correct. And and the left, I don't mean to oversimplify, but the left takes things that people need or want and converts that into a right. Correct. A right is, is a serious word. It means something that all of society is organized to make sure you get. People don't have a right to cell phones or even to housing or to healthcare. Correct. They should get it. And one would hope that society acting individually finds the generosity to give it to them. Correct. But it's not a right. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And uh, typically when I'm talking to fellow libertarians, one of the first questions I ask is, well, what do you think a right is? How would you define a right for people? Uh, and you just did it very well, very eloquently. Uh, the way I phrase it is a right can never be anything that you depend on someone else to provide for you because that involves coercion. And if it's the government giving you something that you think is a right, healthcare, education, housing, um, they are stealing it from someone else. And that's what it is. It's, it's theft. You know, whether you could call it justified or it was voted on, it's still theft. Uh, all forms of taxation are theft. So how much we tolerate of that is, I guess, up to the individual, but uh, you can't have a right to health care. Should we all have health care? Sure. And I have no problem with 100 people getting together, voluntarily contributing into a kitty to buy health care insurance for all the members, group life insurance, for example, or group health insurance, rather. I have no problem with that. Like people think libertarians are against unions or any. No, if it's voluntary, go ahead. And as long as they have no extra protection from the law, nor are they denied any protections of the law, I'm fine with it. Um, I just hate rigged games and I hate uh, special carve outs for people. So uh, I, I can agree with you there. The rights are not anything that need to be provided to you. If they do, they're not rights. They're wants, they're desires. Um, but let me ask you this, Bob, since we're talking about this going back and forth, we mentioned the Libertarian Party. Uh, you did at least initially. I've had this great debate with friends of mine, both in and out uh, of the Libertarian Party, the National Libertarian Party, the political wing, and also just the people who are more like me, more the, the for lack of a better term, philosophical libertarians. Um, what do you feel the role of the Libertarian Party 
is and should be in the United States, meaning should their role be one of influence where they're trying to pull the major parties away from their statism as much as possible? Or is there, should their goal be let's win elections? Because the other meme I like, libertarians are diligently plotting to take over the world and leave you the hell alone, right? Is that what the Libertarian Party should be doing in your opinion? What you have accidentally done is just now extended this podcast from an hour or whatever it is into something akin to your, you may remember the Jerry Lewis telethon. And if you were, if you really sincerely want me to answer that, you better commandeer everything because it's going to be a 24 hour monologue as if I'm doing a filibuster. Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Okay. So why do we, and, why do we, and the reason I say that? Yeah. Go ahead. It, it starts with it starts with the fact that, and this is going to be a semi unsatisfactory answer, but okay. you're stuck. You're stuck with it. Number one, the founders abhorred and feared, and I'll add appropriately, political parties, which they used in the words of the 1770s, factions. Hmm. They feared factions. Uh, because it's something other than a bunch of individuals acting individually. So they knew without really experiencing political parties, factions, they just in right. their gut knew it was bad. We have a system where political parties are profoundly important and they become profoundly important because political parties have done but any other segment of society, if they would do it, they'd be in prison. They have established a monopoly. In many ways, try libertarians, you get calls, I'm sure I do, from the Libertarian Party asking me to send money to the Libertarian Party of Arkansas so they can get on the ballot. Right. Because it costs a fortune. In other words, the two major parties have established a governmentally protected monopoly. Correct. Nobody has access. Let's take the presidential debates on the networks. The parties make the rules who gets to be on the debate. Correct. And they don't want competition. In primaries, it's all weighed in favor of two political parties. So we have in this country, laws that if the manufacturer of breathic cereal would attempt to use the very same laws to monopolize their market as the Republicans and the Democrats do, they would be in prison. Yeah, they get hit so with in other words, yeah. our country yeah. allows a monopoly of ideas, but not a monopoly of breakfast cereal. Right. How dumb is that? You're right. We devalue ideas. So given that, what a waste of energy to talk about a third party. I have done so many shows where I listened with envy of guests from Canada and the UK who talk about the parliamentary system right. with coalitions where minority parties have serious power. 
Right. They at least have a seat at the table. Right. So, right. as I said, by asking me a very straightforward question, we have to go back and talk about parliamentary systems. We have to talk about government endorsed monopoly of ideas. Sure. Libertarians as a party, it makes no sense. It will right. never get more than 1% of the vote to waste the money. On the other hand, movements to capture portions of the other two parties as happens from time to time with the right ideas makes sense. So I say, if you sell our ideas, you make progress. Look at, for example, what's happening with sanctuary cities. Look what's happening with drug policy. The Fed, the states are adopting a libertarian drug policy. Yes. Not conservative and not lib and not progressive. It's libertarian. Right. The same with gay marriage. This and on and on and on. So if you count the issue, if you pick an issue, we have lots of successes. If you say it's a libertarian idea, no one votes for it. Yeah, so I say no. the the label libertarian is a curse. Just get the job done on the policy matters, but don't call it libertarian because people will think you're a libertine or something like that. You're you're a liberal. I get that a lot, but that's right. I, see, I tend to agree with you because um, when I have these discussions with the folks who are LP folks, you know, um, the biggest issue I run into tends to be that they're willing to compromise their ideals to win an election. So when you get to that point, I, I always say, then what's the difference? Then you might as well join one of the other two parties. Um, but at the same time, I think the symbolism of a libertarian party, just as a party that produces thinkers, say, um, is valuable in that sense. It's like maybe a pyrrhic value, but it, it does exist. Um, and then the other thing I think that has value would be uh, the openness of debates, not just for libertarians, for, for any other party, the Green Party. I don't care. I don't agree with anything they say, but they should be a lot on stage as well. Um, and I have a simple rule for that. Like for any debate, if you're on enough ballots to mathematically get to 270 uh, electoral votes, you should be a lot on stage because that means you're a serious party. You've done the legwork on the state level to get ballot access. So in that sense, uh, I think the last go around, you should have had uh, Joe Jorgensen on the stage. You should have had, uh, who was the Green Party candidate? I forget, um, some guy, I forget his name right now. But he should have been on the stage because he had enough ballot access. The party had enough ballot access. And to me, it's a simple rule. It's unambiguous. And it's not subject to the whims of whatever it is right now with the, what's it, the Daughters of Liberty, whoever, uh, you know, the uh, 12 newspapers have to ca say you're polling at 5% in the last month, yeah, whatever it is. You know, yeah, it's totally right. Yeah, it's totally nonsense. So have something unambiguous. The law hates ambiguity, right? So let's do the same thing for our, our debates. I think it's a good thing. Of course, you can't force anybody to do it because it's a private club. They run their own debates. But if they got any government money at all to stage that debate, then it should include anyone with enough. I'm, we're talking about the presidential debates, obviously. Um, very good. So um, 
So you, I think you would probably agree with me that if if it has any purpose at all, the Libertarian Party's purpose should be to shape ideas and to shape policies, uh, and maybe be like a Ron Paul, where you're trying to influence uh, the Republican Party. Or if you're someone like, uh, and not that I think she's Libertarian in any strict sense, but Tulsi Gabbard, for example, pulling the Democrats away from their interventionist agendas and 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 trying to reel that back and reel back the police state a little bit from 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 the left and then you know from the right like you said getting this uh getting the right to budge on gay marriage or or uh um uh, decriminalizing drugs you know um the the whole concept that you know if if marijuana is legalized everyone's going to be a heroin addict in a week um Shows I the, say, see, you know. um, we're talking about tactics. Uh, we have the same goal. I have my opinion on tactics is let's take um, where there's some progress being made, which is in criminal justice reform. Mm -hmm. The country is moving in the right direction. Now, there was a time that Cory Booker and Rand Paul had great momentum on criminal justice reform. And then something happened in foreign policy, whether it was Syria or Iraq or something happened. And the country with a limited attention span got distracted. But the fact is, if you call that a libertarian idea, people would say, I'll just, you know, no, I'm not that interested. I would prefer I don't care if the Democrats or the Republicans co-opt the idea. I don't care if they get the credit. I'm perfectly happy to give anybody credit who wants it, so long as we get criminal justice reform, so long as we decriminalize drug use and, and don't legislate opioid prescriptions and things like right. that. To right. me, if we're talking about tactics, first of all, in my view, tactics, who cares? As long as you get result. But I just feel as a tactic, the Libertarian Party has been so marginalized, calling something a Libertarian idea does not help it. And to be candid, probably damages, the taints the idea. So uh, yeah. you could be right. I'm not sure I'm right. But that you asked me my opinion. Sure. And the beauty of a podcast is we're allowed to have our opinions. Oh, absolutely. And, yeah. and I encourage it. Look, the free exchange of ideas. That's why I'm such a free speech absolutist. Uh, the only way we evolve is through speech. You never know when someone has a good idea that you can learn from. And that's why I'm so in favor of free. Everybody gets to talk. You know, that's why the, the whole culture of, of, of cancellation culture or, or wokeism, you can't use certain words for fear of offending people. Oh my goodness. That might be the single most damaging thing this nation is currently embarked on, which is the, uh, the, the censorship and not necessarily by government. We're doing it to ourselves. We are, we've become our own big brother in that sense that, you know, you can't say certain words or else you'll get doxxed or fired or whatever. Um, and the claim from these activists is, well, it's a private company doing it. It's Twitter that kicked Trump off. It wasn't the government. So you, you can't claim a 1A violation, you know, which is technically correct. But the ethos of, of having free and open debate, and I've said it before, I found Trump as a New Yorker, someone who lived through him in the 70s and 80s before he got into politics. 
I, I have zero love for Trump. I've been able to acknowledge what he's done in certain instances that I view correct, like, for example, um, allowing people to try any drug, you know, that, that doesn't necessarily have FDA approval. Great move, you know. Um, a lot of the deregulation he did, great move. A lot of his economic stuff, he might as well be Bernie Sanders, as far as I'm concerned, considering the debt, considering the tariffs, considering the eminent domains and all that. I have no idea how anyone, even the classical conservatives, I don't understand how they can claim Trump, quite honestly. But um, then again, you look at Biden and you're in the same boat. It's That's why I always consider Democrats and Republicans in today's world uh, two sides of the same coin. They're both the status, they're both status parties. So to that extent, <clears throat> I always make a distinction. If someone says, are you a right Demo a right libertarian or a left libertarian? I always push back. I go, there's no such thing in my book. If you're a right libertarian, if you call yourself a right libertarian, you're a liberal who's trying to appease conservatives on something. And if you're a left libertarian, the opposite, right? Uh, so I, I discard those terms because I think the right-left paradigm just confuses the issue. You're still when you're I, still putting government ahead of people. The way I have the way I handle those conversations, and I love them when I can roll up my sleeves and really, <laughs> without being under time pressure, have a conversation. I establish one rule: a conversation rule. I find any opinion per se to be dreadfully boring. <laughs> I find the reason you reach that opinion to be fascinating. I say, I don't give a damn what you think. Tell me how you got there. Right. And when you, when you take the bar exam as an attorney, you're given essay, right? Sorry. Do you believe it? There's an a that's an emerge. Somebody is missing. That oh my was my God. cell phone. Somebody in Coronado is missing. So, but I'll stay on the air. I'm okay. not going to go out in the street and look for them. Don't okay, worry about enough. a thing. So, <laughs> so I will say when I when I when you take the bar exam, you're you're given a hypothetical, and you're asked for the answer. If you say John wins, and that's the right answer, you're flunk. <laughs> they want to know how you got there. Let's see your reasoning and let's see if it is lawyer-like, air quotes. So, John, when you tell me your opinion, and there's countless issues, you tell me your opinion, I don't care. Tell me how you got there. We're going to be talking for eight hours. Oh, sure. And so I have found that when, when I pick an issue, no matter who, left or right, rent control, Minimum wage, occupational go. licensing, immigration. Never mind, we have too many Hispanics or not enough. Never mind that. Let's talk about the reasoning. That's juicy stuff if the person you're talking to has a brain. If right. they just say, well, I read it, I heard it in CNN. Okay, next topic, boring. But if they got there through reasoning, and they let me into their brain, I don't want to let them go home. It's too much fun. <laughs> sure. So well, never uh, mind what you think. It's how you get there. So therefore, when you talk about a left libertarian or a right libertarian or a Democrat, never mind that. How do you feel about immigration? 
Sure. How do you feel about foreign policy? Should they be a member of NATO? You know, right. all that stuff. I don't care what your label is. <laughs> Tell me how you feel about NATO and we can have fun for eight hours. Yeah, no, I, I tend to agree with you regarding labels, but I, I, I will admit to labels have a purpose in that if you don't have eight hours to talk to someone, an accurate label can at least tell you whether you want to come back and talk to them for eight hours, right? There's a so, phrase, there's a phrase in, in political science called voting shortcuts. Mm. Nobody has the time to become a foreign policy expert. Agreed. And to know how you feel about sending troops to Afghanistan, how you feel about should we have um, more warships, should we go to the moon? No one has the time to study the issue. So what do you do? You say, I, I can't read, I can't study it. So you pick somebody smart, George Will, whatever George mm -hmm. Will thinks about it, whatever he says. That's not being lazy. You haven't got the time. You're outsourcing it. You and I outsource 80% of our life to other sure. people. Hey, right. doctor, fix me. Don't <laughs> tell me the science. Just, right. I don't want my back right. to hurt. I don't, I don't give a damn why it hurts. Just make it go away. Right. You outsource it to a doctor. Right. And so people outsource political decisions. It's perfectly all right. As long as they pick the right person. <laughs> and if you pick a bad doctor, right. you're going to be in traction the rest of your life. So right. you have a responsibility, but not necessarily to understand the issue. Right. If you're going to outsource it, like any other decision in your life, pick the right recipient of the outsourcing. So you might say, I'm a Democrat. Well, that's okay. You might not know what Democrats think, but you might right. say, I followed Nancy Pelosi and I seem to agree with her. So therefore I'm outsourcing it and I'm a Democrat. That's okay. It's no fun because you don't get to use your brain. Um, it's like outsourcing eating to somebody yeah. else. And yeah. let them <laughs> give you the digested food. No, eating is too much fun. I want to eat. Well, it's funny because I think there was a, a Gallup poll in recent years that when you present respondents with issues, no labels, just issues. The biggest sli identifiable slice philosophically is libertarian. The greatest slice of people in the United States, in terms of when you ask them questions like, what do you feel about abortion, immigration, the death penalty, uh, regulation, economics, whatever, right? If you break it down like that, something like 27, 28% of the country is clearly libertarian, uh, that they have a very traditionally american but they don't know it but, but they, they don't, don't know it. it that's that was going to be my point they don't know it and if you and if when the pollsters would tell them well you identify actually as a libertarian then they say i just changed my mind <laughs> yeah they're like no i'm a republican or no i'm a democrat right you just like, proved my point yes that the labels are the libertarian label is a toxic label it makes people change their mind so they're not libertarians. I don't do that. I say, <laughs> never mind the label. Pick it, pick an item. Let's talk about it. And let's see if we agree. Yeah. Four hours later, we don't disagree on anything. You say, welcome to the club. <laughs> Here's the membership card. Oh, well, I, I appreciate your position, Bob, but I'm a stubborn old Greek. Maybe, maybe it's uh, the genetics of having philosophy in my blood. I'll sit there for hours and I'll say, no, 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 no. 
this is why you should call yourself a libertarian. And I'll sit there for hours, much like yourself, uh, having these wonderful discussions with Pope. I, I, John, kinda... I did. John, I did a podcast. It's available on YouTube about my East Coast lawyer lending career, <laughs> making loans to Greek diners. Oh, my goodness. I did 40 minutes. John, you must track it down. Okay. It's lending to Greek diners, Bob Zadek. I, I could do stand-up comedy <laughs> on, I lent through my clients right. to every diner in Nassau and Suffolk County and the Bronx. Fantastic. And I came home with so much baklava. <laughs> every closing, I came with a white box of baklava. I love your community. Well, you I love eat, Astoria. <laughs> I love going to Astoria for closings. I love them. See, that's how I know you're a real New Yorker. You've you've got that life down, you know. And and I, you know, if 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 your accent wasn't enough, I don't know if people can detect people listening can detect it in Bob or my voice, but we have distinctly New York accents in the way we say certain words, you know. You know, growing up in public and high school mm. in Queens, in a very Jewish community um, in Flushing, there was a urban legend. We lived in fear of being attacked by the Fordham Baldies. The Fordham Baldies were, we thought, a <laughs> marauding gang who wore black leather jackets and would often venture off Fordham Road and come to Queens to beat up Jewish kids. Um, and once in a while, one of my friends would come to school and say breathlessly, I think I saw one. I think I saw a Fordham Baldy. So I identify, I know about the Bronx. Well, I have to tell you, Bob, I'm laughing hard because not only am I from the Bronx, I'm a Fordham graduate. Uh -oh. And I grew up right off of Fordham Road. So I'm, uh -oh. even though we're a lot of years apart, I think, I might have been one of those Fordham Baldies. Not that I'm, you know, still don't got beat some me hair. up. Just don't beat me up. <laughs> Just don't beat me up. Exactly. Leave me alone. Um, but but uh, talk to me a little bit about that, because I think there's parts of this country that I think a lot of the racial strife, for lack of a better word, um, in between the coasts, to some extent, may arise from the fact or definitely a big part of it is that people aren't exposed to other cultures. They aren't exposed to other people. And I think folks like us who grew up in Queens, Queens is the most diverse patch of land on the 400 planet. 400 languages, 400 languages. 400 languages, yeah. So when you grow up in some place like Queens or the Bronx, or I'm assuming maybe uh, like a Chicago or, or maybe in LA, I'm not, I, I've never been to California. That's my uh, admission here. So I don't know what LA, the demographics are necessarily. But my feeling is when you're in an urban area, you're exposed to everybody. And there's no mystery about what how other people operate and you get to see that people are people for the most part uh i think do you think that that because that's lacking in say in what hillary clinton once described as flyover uh country do you think the lack of that diversity and I, i'm not using diversity in a political sense i'm using it in the true meaning of the word do you think that lack of diversity drives strife that's heightened by something like social media? I, I don't think so. Um, I tend to have a, an intensely strong sweet spot for Midwesterners, the flyover mm -hmm. states. Um, I have only lived on the coast, but I do business around sure. the country and I'm a lender. And um, I'll answer your question with a sentence of introduction or two. 
when anybody is a lender, I lend money to businesses, every lender makes lending rules, okay. which you say, here's my rules. And why do you make a rule? Because you did something and you lost money. And you say, never again, I'm not stupid. Right, right, right. So one of my lending rules, because of my great affection for the Midwest is, I have a lending rule. I don't lend money to a borrower if the president of the company can see an ocean from his window. <laughs> they don't get my money. I love Midwesterners. Gotcha. I, love, I, I just love the mentality. I love eating at Bob's Big Boy. I love it. Um, <laughs> So I have great affection for the Midwest and respect for the values. I think that the fact that it is more homogeneous is simply a fact of immigration. Sure. And that is to say that immigrants naturally started to live where they landed. And then the next generation goes where their family is. And it's that. And there was one story um, that I heard recently, and I, there's a uptown and up, upstate New York is more like the Midwest. Sure. It's blue collar. And I think the city I'm talking about is Utica, New York. I went to school in Syracuse and Utica is on the, on the Erie Canal and the Thruway. And Utica was a dying city. Mm. And it started to embrace and invite immigrants to come here. And they had a system where they underwrote housing, helped them get jobs and third world countries. It was dominated by one or a few countries and I forgot where, it really doesn't matter for my story. But these immigrants who come into exactly the kind of community you described, upstate New York, New York, but still kind of rust belt in sure. its economic structure. Um, the old days of General Electric and carrier air conditioning, all gone. And this city is taking off and embracing each other. And the fact is, what I believe, and I am, in a way, I have to give a warning. I am so profoundly optimistic always. So everything I say is. I'm going to live forever. So is everybody else. That's what I think. And I say it is leaders of groups who carry animus for political reasons. And the rest of the group just acquires it. Even countries. Right. When you have anti-Catholic countries, if you have a Catholic and a non-Catholic, from two different countries, one is anti-Catholic, and they're on a walking vacation together. They're gonna to get along like brothers. At the individual level, person to person, never a problem. Now, if somebody has been inculcated with hatred, which is unnatural, it was embedded, they're stuck with it, they gotta work out of it. Right. But the natural instinct among human beings as a species is to accept each other. So that's my longish answer to your suggestion that homo, because the Midwest is homogeneous, they might have a distorted view of people not like them. Right, and, and that's just a 
that was just the theory put forth, obviously. And of course, the opposite is true, you know, that um, a lot of the concerns of the Midwest are often discarded by the media centers, which are almost exclusively on, on the coasts, um, you know, which I still think is almost entirely the reason Trump was elected was the media's treatment of him initially not taking him seriously. And then once they realized he was in a position to win, uh, treating him unfairly. And again, I'm no Trump supporter by any stretch of the imagination, but it was very obvious to me what, what was going on in 2016 regarding the media and Trump. So I, I could see it from both sides, right? Like the, the, the exposure only to your tribe, for lack of a better term, mm-hmm. uh, is a narrow is a form even if it's unconscious of narrow-mindedness because you're not exposing yourself to different people you're not exposing yourself to different ideas uh, i always like to say this you know like um for people who are ethnically greek you know their their natural born enemies are of course the turks right uh the same way the irish and the english don't get along or the chinese and the japanese don't get along you know uh just in terms of culture and I, I'll, I'll never forget my mother um, saying the whole time, oh, you can't trust Turks, never trust a Turk, you know, like all the stupid shit you hear when you're a kid, right? Um, and of course, the irony is that where she grew up in Greece and my, where my father grew up in Greece is the westernmost island of Greece. They are the furthest point from Turkey and still be able to be called Greece. Do you know what I mean? So they had no interaction with Turks. Well, These the were uh cephalonia actually yeah yeah all they're closer to sicily than anywhere else the irony is if you go to the island there's more italian structures from the conquering italian soldiers than anything even remotely ottoman on that that, uh, island um but the interesting thing was that they had just been told those stories as kids and they didn't know any better so as they grew up they just retained those biases and the one thing that changed my mother's mind at the end of the day was when my son was going through a rough patch medically, it was a Turkish doctor that really helped him and, and put him back on the path of health and well-being. And in that one moment, my mother was able to humanize these people that she, that she had been told her whole life were evil and out to get her. You tell the story you told is your brother, was it? Um, in the second part of the story? With my the son. Doctor? My, okay. Um, his opinion was based upon his own experience. Your mother's was taught into her. Yes. And therefore, it's what I believe. If people are left to reach their own independent decision, right, it'll always be what I believe, which is nice person, like to have him as a friend. If it's What's taught into you, you have no control over that. Well, it's, it's much like, harder to overcome. You're right. It's much harder much to harder. overcome. Much harder. Just like religion. It's it's it, 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 if you've been ingrained in a religion without making a judgment on any particular religion right now, how many people actually become apostates from their own religion? Very few. And it, it's one of the most difficult things to 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 overcome, right? if you decide to do so. So I understand what you're saying. And, and I think I'm also optimistic like you, uh, Bob, I tend to think that um, I tend to think the better of people for the most part, unless they've given me reason not to, I would, I tend to look at the uh, people. That's because that's until they bounce a check, bounce a check or come to rob me somehow, or that's right. Once they bounce a check, 
I have a whole different view. That's a rule of business, right, Bob? It's another important rule. <laughs> All right. Wow, this has been a great talk, Bob. I'm, I'm really happy we had this opportunity. But uh, as we wrap up the show here, I'm going to do what I always do with my guests. I'm going to throw some silly questions at you. And uh, you just answer them as honestly as you can and in any way that you want. It's totally Maybe open-ended. Maybe I'll just say it's silly and I'm not going to answer, but I won't do that. <laughs> okay. Um, what, who would you say was, uh, I think I know the answer because you mentioned it, who was the most influential person uh, in your life in terms of shaping your worldview? You mean that I had personal contact with or somebody in the world who... Any, any way you want to answer that. Well, I'll, I'll answer it two ways. Um, externally, either Milton Friedman or Ronald Reagan, probably Ronald Reagan. Okay. Somehow, somehow he got into my soul. And when he spoke, um, I went to Simi Valley uh, to the Reagan Library and I could not tear myself away from the big screen as he recites Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. Right. If I, and I, I was afraid, but I just was speaking, my voice was going to crack. Right. Uh, so Ronald Reagan and Milton Friedman, because every syllable he said just sounded so gosh darn true. And, and it just, every syllable. Yeah. And he's an economist, and I'm not an economist. Somehow, Everything sounded exactly right. And if he wasn't right, I wanted it to be right. <laughs> so he he had the secret sauce. And, and the third person is a law professor who introduced me to the body of law in which I spent 57 years and counting. Okay. And he was instrumental. And I made a video at one time uh, when we were giving an award in his name. And I was speaking to him through the video camera, but I knew he was going to see the video. And his name was Homer Kripke, K-R-I-P-K-E, at NYU Law School. And I said to him, Professor Kripke, I don't know how to thank somebody who has given me my entire life. Mm. So there you have it. Yeah, and that's, that's a great answer. I love the way you phrased that. That was a great uh, response. Uh, what's your favorite activity to unwind? <laughs> oh, reading a loan agreement. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, whatever you want to right? To unwind, it's walking with my wife. Um, walking is wonderful. It's the right pace. It feels good. It's it's a kind of one-on-one -on -one contact uh, surrounded by nice climate and beautiful surroundings that can't be replaced. So I guess that's that's up there, but I have a, a such a passionate relationship to my work. Um, if I were to have a tombstone, I so far, I am, I've been immortal all my life and <laughs> I intend to remain immortal for a good long time. But if I were to have a tombstone, it would it would remind people just because you get paid to do it shouldn't ruin it. There you go. Great, great little uh, saying there. I love it. All right, finish the sentence for me. The best bagel in the country is from? Zabar's or Russ and Daughters. Um, I get them delivered once a month 
the <laughs> the Federal Express alone is ninety dollars. It doesn't stop me one tiny bit. It's Zabar's always. That's how I know you're a true New Yorker, right? But Only don't ask me which Ray's pizza is the best because <laughs> I have no way to answer that question. Yeah, that's a shell game. You know. <laughs> I know. <laughs> Bob, it was fantastic talking to you. Uh, hopefully you enjoyed your time here and uh, you'll be willing to do this again sometime in the future. How about tomorrow? <laughs> Maybe not tomorrow, but definitely. I, I, I enjoyed our conversation. The test uh, of how much you love me. That's all. Yeah, exactly. But seriously, uh, I, I think we, uh, I, I, if you don't mind me saying, I think I've made a friend here today. Uh, I think we have very similar views, uh, worldviews and philosophical views. And where we don't, I think we can have very reasoned. I'll tell you where we don't. Yankees versus the Brooklyn Dodgers. Oh, well, I'm not a Yankee fan. Well, maybe I was wrong. Yeah. Brooklyn Dodgers. 19, I still know the lineup from 1954 by heart. Oh, uh, go ahead. Rattle it off for me. Rattle it off for me then. Show uh, off. Junior Gilliam, Pee Wee Reese, Duke Snyder. Gil Hodges, Carl Ferrillo, Gene Hermansky, uh, 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 Jackie Robbins for a while ago, of course, Roy Campanella, uh, Carl Ferrillo was in right field, 27, there are 27 different angles on the right field wall at Ebbets Stadium, Ebbets Stadium, Ebbets Field held 33,200 and something people on Flatbush Avenue. You want me to go on or is that enough? No, you're a Brooklyn Dodger fan. Can I earn I my creds? <laughs> that's your cred you're you've you've got your real creds and i'll even i'll throw this out i grew up a mets fan because uh when i was young we rented an apartment uh you know one of those where the owner lives on the first floor and you rent out the, the top floors and uh the landlady was a giants fan but a new york giants fan so when the dodgers and giants bolted for california uh she decided to abstained from baseball until the Mets were formed because she she recognized the logo being the Giants logo on the Mets cap. So she became a Mets fan. My parents didn't know anything about baseball, but she made sure I grew up a Mets fan. So uh, it's a Mets fan for me. I gave up when them bums, them <laughs> bums left uh, Flatbush Avenue. I gave up baseball. I can imagine. Heart. Oh, so you didn't follow them out to L.A.? I did not. No, no, no. I, I didn't go to California until 1983. I then became a passionate New York Giant, um, football Giants fan during the Charlie Connolly, Y.A. Tittle, uh, Frank Gifford era. Uh, I still watch once a year the greatest game ever played. Mm. Um, it, the it's not on Netflix, but you have to watch it on YouTube, which is kind of grainy. But it's still a fabulous two-hour sports flick. Oh, the, you're talking about the 58, uh, Colts, 58 Baltimore, Colts, Giants. Baltimore yeah. Colts, New York Giants, Alan Amici in overtime, uh, Johnny Unitas, greatest uh, other than um, Jim Thorpe, maybe um, to me, one of the greatest athletic Americans ever. Um, Johnny Unitas is an idol of mine, idol. One of the greatest field generals in football history, and a lot of people don't realize, wasn't he like a 19th round pick back when he they was walk in. He was a walk-in. Oh, he was a walk-in? I thought he was like a 19th round pick. Can I, do we have time for me to share a very uh, a, a Johnny Unitas, very short uh, anecdote? Do we have always, time? always have time for a Johnny U anecdote. Uh, in the greatest game ever played, it's sudden death overtime in the snow. Uh, Baltimore is on the giant nine-yard line. Sudden death, any score wins. 
He could have called a field goal. In those days, quarterbacks called their own plays. Right. They were truly field generals. Johnny Unitas called a pass to Raymond Berry in the flat, an incredibly dangerous pass on the giant nine-yard line. Interception means a touchdown the other way. Right. Unitas is hounded out of the world. He calls it, and it almost scored a touchdown, tackled on the one. The next play, Alan Amici scores, game over. In the locker room, a sportscaster and Johnny Unitas, uh, crew cut, high black cleats, yep. uh, walk in. He, they asked him with a microphone hand right under his mouth, Johnny, that play you called, a pass in the flat in the nine-yard line, that was a pretty dangerous call. Weren't you afraid of being intercepted? And he said, John, and I get goosebumps every time I repeat it. You know what he said? No. He said, if you're good, you don't get intercepted. There you go. John, I wish I had that confidence in my life. We all do. John, that is somebody I would aspire to be. If you're good, you don't throw interceptions with incredible confidence as if what a dumb question. Yeah. Why bother asking me? That's right. <laughs> and, and you know what? That's what all the greats have is, is that ability to block out the negative mentally. So it's a it's a reason just very quickly why a lot of these super physically gifted athletes fail a lot of times. It's because they don't have it up here, whether it's confidence or putting in the mental practice to, to become the best. Uh, so Johnny, you had that in spades. He wasn't, to me, he wasn't all that physically gifted as some of the other, uh, even his contemporaries, but the, the, I, I always thought the term field general was invented just for Johnny Unitas because, uh, him and Bart Starr arguably could be the two greatest that I can remember in terms of, uh, running a team and running an offense, uh, but Johnny Yu, wasn't he credited with the two minute offense? Really? Uh, he invented it in that game. Yeah. The concept didn't exist until that game. Right, right. He had two minutes to get downfield. And I urge your sports-minded listeners to track down that YouTube and just to watch the last two minutes. Understand it was the first game nationally televised in the history of the NFL. Right. It put the NFL on the map. All everything was riding on this game. He calls his own plays goes down the length of the field in two minutes to go into overtime and then and, and to win. Yeah, it, it, it was fantastic. And if anybody says, where's the precise moment where football overtook baseball as the national pastime, it's 1958 in the championship game. Uh, that was the moment. Football. And that's, there's a photograph of Alan Amici. The horse. The horse, Alan the horse Amici going through the line going through the line off tackle yes. and it, the photograph is at the moment he crosses the, the goal line, you can see the blocks, you can see Amici yes. and there is almost, there have been essays written about that photograph. It was a 17 year old who be, became liked by all the sportscasters and they let him on the field. Mm. And he happened to be standing in the exactly opposite Alan Amici. Oh, and wow. he took the picture at the right time. He was like a high school kid. I did or something not know like that. that. I did not oh, know that. That's there's, a, point. there's an entire story. I think he wrote a book. 
okay. just on the photograph. So Amazing. for a sports-minded audience, yep, that's uh, a lot. And of I'm not a big sports fan, as I told you. So that was an unnatural. I know I have a few sports anecdotes that I carry in my heart. All right, that's great. All right. Bob, thank you for the, uh, appearing on the show again. We will talk again, definitely. And until next time, when I have another wonderful, interesting guest to talk with, this is Big John. Peace out, everyone. Thanks a lot, John. Have a good weekend.